Section 24 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Clark. What is Property? An Enquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker. Second Memoir, Part 2. It would be an abuse of the reader's patience to insist further upon the tendency of our time towards equality. There are, moreover, so many people who denounce the present age that nothing is gained by exposing to their view the popular, scientific, and representative tendencies of the nation. Prompt to recognize the accuracy of the inferences drawn from observation, they confine themselves to a general censure of the facts and an absolute denial of their legitimacy. What wonder they say, that this atmosphere of equality intoxicates us, considering all that has been said and done during the past ten years. Do you not see that society is dissolving, that a spirit of infatuation is carrying us away? All these hopes of regeneration are but forebodings of death. Your songs of triumph are like the prayers of the departing. Your trumpet peals announce the baptism of a dying man. Civilization is falling in ruin. Imus, Imus, Precipites. Such people deny God. I might content myself with the reply that the spirit of 1830 was the result of the maintenance of the violated charter, that this charter arose from the revolution of 89, that 89 implies the state's general's right of remonstrance and the enfranchisement of the communes, that the communes suppose feudalism, which in its turn supposes invasion, Roman law, Christianity, etc., but it is necessary to look further. We must penetrate to the very heart of ancient institutions, plunge into the social depths, and uncover this indestructible leaven of equality which the God of justice breathed into our souls, and which manifests itself in all our works. Labor is man's contemporary. It is a duty, since it is a condition of existence. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. It is more than a duty, it is a mission, God put man into the garden to dress it. I add that labor is the cause and means of equality. Cast away upon a desert island two men, one large, strong, and active, the other weak, timid, and domestic. The latter will die of hunger, while the other, a skillful hunter, an expert fisherman, and an indefatigable husbandman, will overstock himself with provisions. What greater inequality in this state of nature so dear to the heart of Jean-Jacques could be imagined? But let these two men meet and associate themselves. The second immediately tends to the cooking, takes charge of the household affairs, and sees to the provisions, beds, and clothes. Provided the stronger does not abuse his superiority by enslaving and ill-treating his companion, their social condition will be perfectly equal. Thus, through the exchange of services, the inequalities of nature neutralize each other. Talents associate and forces balance. Violence and inertia are found only among the poor and the aristocratic. And in that lies the philosophy of political economy, the mystery of human brotherhood. Hic est sapientia. Let us pass from the hypothetical state of pure nature into civilization. The proprietor of the soil, who produces, I will suppose, with the economists by lending his instrument, receives at the foundation of a society so many bushels of grain for each acre of arable land. As long as labor is weak and the variety of its product small, the proprietor is powerful in comparison with the laborers. He has ten times, one hundred times, the portion of an honest man. 
but let labor by multiplying its inventions multiply its enjoyments and wants and the proprietor if he wishes to enjoy the new products will be obliged to reduce his income every day and since the first products tend rather to depreciate than to rise in value in consequence of the continual addition of the new ones which may be regarded as supplements of the first ones it follows that the idle proprietor grows poor as fast as public prosperity increases incomes i like to quote you sir because it is impossible to give too good an authority for these elementary principles of economy and because i cannot express them better myself incomes you have said tend to disappear as capital increases he who possesses to-day an income of twenty thousand pounds is not nearly as rich as he who possessed the same amount fifty years ago the time is coming when all property will be a burden to the idle and will necessarily pass into the hands of the able and industrious footnote lecture of december twenty second End footnote. in order to live as a proprietor or to consume without producing it is necessary then to live upon the labor of another in other words it is necessary to kill the laborer it is upon this principle that proprietors of those varieties of capital which are a primary necessity increase their farm rents as fast as industry develops much more careful of their privileges in that respect than those economists who in order to strengthen property advocate a reduction of interest but the crime is unavailing labor and production increase soon the proprietor will be forced to labor and then property is lost the proprietor is a man who having absolute control of an instrument of production claims the right to enjoy the product of the instrument without using it himself to this end he lends it and we have just seen that from this loan the laborer derives a power of exchange which sooner or later will destroy the right of increase in the first place the proprietor is obliged to allow the laborer a portion of the product for without it the laborer could not live soon the latter through the development of his industry finds a means of regaining the greater portion of that which he gives to the proprietor so that at the last the objects of enjoyment increasing continually while the income of the idler remains the same the proprietor having exhausted his resources begins to think of going to work himself then the victory of the producer is certain labor commences to tip the balance towards its own side and commerce leads to equilibrium man's instinct cannot err as in liberty exchange of functions leads inevitably to equality among men so commerce or exchange of products which is identical with exchange of functions is a new cause of equality as long as the proprietor does not labor however small his income he enjoys a privilege the laborer's welfare may be equal to his but equality of conditions does not exist but as soon as the proprietor becomes a producer since he can exchange his special product only with his tenant or his commandite sooner or later his tenant this exploited man if violence is not done him will make a profit out of the proprietor and will oblige him to restore in the exchange of their respective products the interest on his capital so that balancing one injustice by another the contracting parties will be equal labor and exchange when liberty prevails lead then to equality of fortunes mutuality of services neutralizes privilege that is why despots in all ages and countries have assumed control of commerce they wished to prevent the labor of their subjects from becoming an obstacle to the rapacity of tyrants up to this point all takes place in the natural order there is no premeditation no artifice the whole proceeding is governed by the laws of necessity alone proprietors and laborers act only in obedience to their wants thus the exercise of the right of increase the art of robbing the producer depends during this first period of civilization upon physical violence murder and war 
but at this point a gigantic and complicated conspiracy is hatched against the capitalists the weapon of the exploiters is met by the exploit head with the instrument of commerce a marvellous invention denounced at its origin by the moralists who favoured property but inspired without doubt by the genius of labour by the minerva of the proletaire the principal cause of the evil lay in the accumulation and immobility of capital of all sorts an immobility which prevented labour enslaved and subalternized by haughty idleness from ever acquiring it the necessity was felt of dividing and mobilizing wealth of rendering it portable of making it pass from the hands of the possessor into those of the worker labour invented money afterwards this invention was revived and developed by the bill of exchange and the bank for all these things are substantially the same and proceed from the same mind the first man who conceived the idea of representing a value by a shell a precious stone or a certain weight of metal was the real inventor of the bank what is a piece of money in fact it is a bill of exchange written upon solid and durable material and carrying with it its own redemption by this means oppressed equality was enabled to laugh at the efforts of the proprietors and the balance of justice was adjusted for the first time in the tradesman's shop the trap was cunningly set and accomplished its purpose so thoroughly that in idle hands money became only dissolving wealth a false symbol a shadow of riches an excellent economist and profound philosopher was that miser who took as his motto when a guinea is exchanged it evaporates so it may be said when real estate is converted into money it is lost this explains the constant fact of history that the nobles the unproductive proprietors of the soil have everywhere been dispossessed by industrial and commercial plebeians such was especially the case in the formation of the italian republics born during the middle ages of the impoverishment of the seigneurs i will not pursue the interesting considerations which this matter suggests i could only repeat the testimony of historians and present economical demonstrations in an altered form the greatest enemy of the landed and industrial aristocracy today, the incessant promoter of equality of fortunes is the banker through him immense plains are divided mountains change their positions forests are grown upon the public squares one hemisphere produces for another and every corner of the globe has its usufructories by means of the bank new wealth is continually created the use of which soon becoming indispensable to selfishness wrests the dormant capital from the hands of the jealous proprietor the bank is at once the most potent creator of wealth and the main distributor of the products of art and nature and yet by the strangest antimony this same banker is the most relentless collector of profits increased and usury ever inspired by the demon of property the importance of the services which he renders leads us to endure though not without complaint the taxes which he imposes nevertheless since nothing can avoid its providential mission since nothing which exists can escape the end for which it exists the banker the modern croesus must some day become the restorer of equality and following in your footsteps sir i have already given the reason namely that profit decreases as capital multiplies since an increase of capital calling for more laborers without whom it remains unproductive always causes an increase of wages whence it follows that the bank to-day the suction pump of wealth is destined to become the steward of the human race the phrase equality of fortunes chafes people as if it referred to a condition of the other world unknown here below there are some persons radicals as well as moderates whom the very mention of this idea fills with indignation let then these silly aristocrats abolish mercantile societies and insurance companies which are founded by prudence for mutual assistance 
for all these social factors so spontaneous and free from all leveling intentions are the legitimate fruits of the instinct of equality when the legislator makes a law properly speaking he does not make it he does not create it he describes it in legislating upon the moral civil and political relations of citizens he does not express an arbitrary notion he states the general idea the higher principle which governs the matter which he is considering in a word he is the proclaimer not the inventor of the law so when two or more men form among themselves by a synalogmatic contract an industrial or an insurance association they recognize that their interests formerly isolated by a false spirit of selfishness and independence are firmly connected by their inner natures and by the mutuality of their relations they do not really bind themselves by an act of their private will they swear to conform henceforth to a previously existing social law hitherto disregarded by them and this is proved by the fact that these same men could they avoid association would not associate before they can be induced to unite their interests they must acquire full knowledge of the dangers of competition and isolation hence the experience of evil is the only thing which leads them into society now i say that to establish equality among men it is only necessary to generalize the principle upon which insurance agriculture and commercial associations are based i say that competition isolation of interest monopoly privilege accumulation of capital exclusive enjoyment subordination of functions individual production the right of profit or increase the exploitation of man by man and to sum up all these species under one head that property is the principal cause of misery and crime and for having arrived at this offensive and anti-proprietary conclusion i am in a bored monster radicals and conservatives alike point me out as a fit subject for prosecution the academies shower their censures upon me the most worthy people regard me as mad and those are excessively tolerant who content themselves with the assertion that i am a fool o oh, unhappy the writer who publishes the truth otherwise than as a performance of a duty if he has counted upon the applause of the crowd if he has supposed that avarice and self-interest would forget themselves in admiration of him if he has neglected to encase himself within three thicknesses of brass he will fail as he ought in his selfish undertaking the unjust criticisms the sad disappointments the despair of his mistaken ambition will kill him but if i am no longer permitted to express my own personal opinion concerning this interesting question of social equilibrium let me at least make known the thought of my masters and develop the doctrines advocated in the name of the government it has never been my intention sir in spite of the vigorous censure which you in behalf of your academy have pronounced upon the doctrine of equality of fortunes to contradict and cope with you in listening to you i have felt my inferiority too keenly to permit me to enter upon such a discussion and then if it must be said however different your language is from mine we believe in the same principles you share all my opinions i do not mean to insinuate thereby sir that you have to use the phraseology of the schools an esoteric or an exoteric doctrine that secretly believing in equality you defend property only from motives of prudence and by command i am not rash enough to regard you as my colleague in my revolutionary projects and i esteem you too highly moreover to suspect you of dissimulation I only mean that the truths which methodical investigation and laborious metaphysical speculation have painfully demonstrated to me a profound acquaintance with political economy and a long experience reveal to you. While I have reached my belief in equality by long reflection and almost in spite of my desires, you hold yours, sir, with all the zeal of faith, with all the spontaneity of genius. 
That is why your course of lectures at the conservatory is a perpetual war upon property and inequality of fortunes. That is why your most learned investigations, your most ingenious analyses, and your innumerable observations always conclude in a formula of progress and equality. That is why, finally, you are never more admired and applauded than at those moments of inspiration when, borne upon the wings of science, you ascend to those lofty truths which cause plebeian hearts to beat with enthusiasm and which chill with horror men whose intentions are evil. How many times, from the place where I eagerly drank in your eloquent words, have I inwardly thanked heaven for exempting you from the judgment passed by St. Paul upon the philosophers of his time? They have known the truth and have not made it known. How many times have I rejoiced at finding my own justification in each of your discourses? No, no, I neither wish nor ask for anything which you do not teach yourself. I appeal to your numerous audience. Let it belie me if, in commenting upon you, I pervert your meaning. A disciple of Say, what in your eyes is more antisocial than the custom houses, or, as you correctly call them, the barriers erected by monopoly between nations, what is more annoying, more unjust, more absurd than this prohibitory system which compels us to pay forty sous in France for that which in England or Belgium would bring us but fifteen? It is the custom house, you once said. Footnote. Lecture of January 15, 1841. End footnote. Which arrests the development of civilization by preventing the specialization of industries. It is the custom house which enriches a hundred monopolists by impoverishing millions of citizens. It is the custom-house which produces famine in the midst of abundance, which makes labor sterile by prohibiting exchange, and which stifles production in a mortal embrace. It is the custom-house which renders nations jealous of and hostile to each other. Four-fifths of the wars of all ages were caused originally by the custom-house. And then, at the highest pitch of your enthusiasm, you shouted, Yes! If to put an end to this hateful system it should become necessary for me to shed the last drop of my blood, I would joyfully spring into the gap, asking only time enough to give thanks to God for having judged me worthy of martyrdom. And at that solemn moment I said to myself, Place in every department of France such a professor as that, and the revolution is avoided. But, sir, by this magnificent theory of liberty of commerce, you render military glory impossible." You leave nothing for diplomacy to do. You even take away the desire for conquest while abolishing profit altogether. What matters it indeed who restores Constantinople, Alexandria, and St. Jean de Cray if the Syrians, Egyptians, and Turks are free to choose their masters, free to exchange their products with whom they please? Why should Europe get into such a turmoil over this petty sultan and his old pasha if it is only a question of whether we or the English shall civilize the Orient, shall instruct Egypt and Syria in the European arts, and shall teach them to construct machines, dig canals, and build railroads? For if to national independence free trade is added, the foreign influence of these two countries is thereafter exerted only through a voluntary relationship of producer to producer, or apprentice to journeyman. Alone among European powers, France cheerfully accepted the task of civilizing the Orient and began an invasion which was quite apostolic in its character, so joyful and high-minded do noble thoughts render our nation. But diplomatic rivalry, national selfishness, English avarice, and Russian ambition stood in her way. To consummate a long-meditated usurpation, it was necessary to crush a too generous ally. The robbers of the Holy Alliance formed a league against dauntless and blameless France, Consequently, at the news of this famous treaty, there arose among us a chorus of curses upon the principle of property, which at the time was acting under the hypocritical formulas of the old political system. 
the last hour of property seemed to have struck by the side of syria from the alps to the ocean from the rhine to the pyrenees the popular conscience was aroused all france sang songs of war and the coalition turned pale at the sound of these shuddering cries war upon the autocrat who wishes to be proprietor of our old world war upon the english perjurer the devourer of india the poisoner of china the tyrant of ireland and the eternal enemy of france war upon the allies who have conspired against liberty and equality war 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 upon property by the council of providence the emancipation of the nations is postponed france is to conquer not by arms but by example universal reason does not yet understand this grand equation which commencing with the abolition of slavery and advancing over the ruins of aristocracies and thrones must end in equality of rights and fortunes but the day is not far off when the knowledge of this truth will be as common as that of equality of origin already it seems to be understood that the oriental question is only a question of custom-houses is it then so difficult for public opinion to generalize this idea and to comprehend finally that if the suppression of custom-houses involves the abolition of national property it involves also as a consequence the abolition of individual property in fact if we suppress the custom-houses the alliance of the nations is declared by that very act their solidarity is recognized and their equality proclaimed if we suppress the custom-houses the principle of association will not be slow in reaching from the state to the province from the province to the city and from the city to the workshop but then what becomes of the privileges of authors and artists of what use are the patents for invention imagination amelioration and improvement when our deputies write a law of literary property by the side of a law which opens a large breach in the custom-house they contradict themselves indeed and pull down with one hand what they build up with the other without the custom-house literary property does not exist and the hopes of our starving authors are frustrated for certainly you do not expect with the good man fourier that literary property will exercise itself in china to the profit of a french writer and that an ode of lamartine sold by privilege all over the world will bring in millions to its author the poet's work is peculiar to the climate in which he lives everywhere else the reproduction of his works having no market value should be frank and free but what will it be necessary for nations to put themselves under mutual surveillance for the sake of verses statues and elixirs we shall always have then an excise a city toll rights of entrance and transit custom houses finally and then as a reaction against privilege smuggling smuggling that word reminds me of one of the most horrible forms of property smuggling you have said sir footnote lecture of january fifteenth eighteen forty one end of footnote is an offence of political creation it is the exercise of natural liberty defined as a crime and in certain cases by the will of the sovereign the smuggler is a gallant man a man of spirit who gaily busies himself in procuring for his neighbor at a very low price a jewel a shawl or any other object of necessity or luxury which domestic monopoly renders excessively dear then to a very poetical monograph of the smuggler you add this dismal conclusion that the smuggler belongs to the family of mandarin and that the galleys should be his home but sir you have not called attention to the horrible exploitation which is carried on in this way in the name of property it is said and i give this report only as an hypothesis and an illustration for i do not believe it it is said that the present minister of finances owes his fortune to smuggling Monsieur Humain of Strasbourg sent out of France, it is said, enormous quantities of sugar, for which he received the bounty on exportation promised by the state. 
then smuggling his sugar back in he exported it anew receiving the bounty on exportation a second time and so on notice sir that i do not state this is a fact i give it only as it is told not endorsing or even believing it my sole design is to fix the idea in the mind by an example if i believed that a minister had committed such a crime that is if i had personal and authentic knowledge that he had i would denounce m Humann, the minister of finances to the chamber of deputies and i would loudly demand his expulsion from the ministry but that which is undoubtedly false of m Humann is true of many others as rich and no less honorable than he smuggling organized on a large scale by the eaters of human flesh is carried on to the profit of a few pashas at the risk and peril of their imprudent victims the inactive proprietor offers his merchandise for sale the actual smuggler risks his liberty his honor and his life if success crowns the enterprise the courageous servant gets paid for his journey the profit goes to the coward if fortune or treachery delivers the instrument of this execrable traffic into the hands of the custom-house officer the master smuggler suffers a loss which a more fortunate voyage will soon repair the agent pronounced a scoundrel is thrown into prison in company with robbers while his glorious patron a juror elector deputy or minister makes laws concerning expropriation monopoly and customs houses i promised at the beginning of this letter that no attack on property should escape my pen my only object being to justify myself before the public by a general recrimination but I could not refrain from branding so odious a mode of exploitation, and I trust that this short digression will be pardoned. Property does not avenge, I hope, the injuries which smuggling suffers. The conspiracy against property is general. It is flagrant. It takes possession of all minds and inspires all our laws. It lies at the bottom of all theories. Here the proletaire pursues property in the street. There the legislator lays an interdict upon it, now a professor of political economy or of industrial legislation footnote messieurs blanqui and wolowski end of footnote paid to defend it undermines it with redoubled blows at another time an academy calls it in question footnote subject proposed by the fourth class of the institute the academy of moral and political sciences what would be the effect upon the working class of the organization of labor according to the modern ideas of association end footnote or inquires as to the progress of its demolition. Footnote. Subject proposed by the Academy of Bessasson. The economical and moral consequences in France, up to the present time, and those which seem likely to appear in future, of the law concerning the equal division of hereditary property between the children. End of footnote. Today there is not an idea, not an opinion, not a sect, which does not dream of muzzling property. None confess it because none are yet conscious of it, there are too few minds capable of grasping spontaneously this ensemble of causes and effects, of principles and consequences by which I try to demonstrate the approaching disappearance of property. On the other hand, the ideas that are generally formed of this right are too divergent and too loosely determined to allow an admission, so soon, of the contrary theory. Thus, in the middle and lower ranks of literature and philosophy, no less than among the common people, it is thought that, when property is abolished, no one will be able to enjoy the fruit of his labor that no one will have any thing peculiar to himself, and that tyrannical communism will be established on the ruins of family and liberty. Chimeras, which are to support for a little while longer the cause of privilege. But before determining precisely the idea of property, before seeking amid the contradictions of systems for the common element which must form the basis of the new right, 
let us cast a rapid glance at the changes which at the various periods of history property has undergone the political forms of nations are the expression of their beliefs the mobility of these forms their modification and their destruction are solemn experiences which show us the value of ideas and gradually eliminate from the infinite variety of customs the absolute eternal and immutable truth now we shall see that every political institution tends necessarily on a pain of death to equalize conditions that everywhere and always equality of fortunes like equality of rights has been the social aim whether the plebeian classes have endeavored to rise to political power by means of property or whether rulers already they have used political power to overthrow property we shall see in short by the progress of society that the consummation of justice lies in the extinction of individual domain for the sake of brevity i will disregard the testimony of ecclesiastical history and christian theology this subject deserves a separate treatise, and I propose hereafter to return to it. Moses and Jesus Christ prescribed under the names of usury and inequality. Footnote. Greater property. The Vulgate translates it avaritia. End of footnote. All sorts of profit and increase. The Church itself, in its purest teachings, has always condemned property, and when I attacked not only the authority of the Church, but also its infidelity to justice, I did it to the glory of religion. I wanted to provoke a peremptory reply and to pave the way for Christianity's triumph in spite of the innumerable attacks of which it is at present the object. I hoped that an apologist would arise forthwith and, taking his stand upon the scriptures, the fathers, the canons, and the councils and constitutions of the popes, would demonstrate that the church always has maintained the doctrine of equality and would attribute to temporary necessity the contradictions of its discipline. Such a labor would serve the cause of religion as well as that of equality, we must know sooner or later whether christianity is to be regenerated in the church or out of it and whether this church accepts the reproaches cast upon it of hatred to liberty and antipathy to progress until then we will suspend judgment and content ourselves with placing before the clergy the teachings of history when lycurgus undertook to make laws for sparta in what condition did he find this republic on this point all historians agree the people and the nobles were at war the city was in a confused state and divided by two parties, the party of the poor and the party of the rich. Hardly escaped from the barbarism of the heroic ages, society was rapidly declining. The proletariat made war upon property, which, in its turn, oppressed the proletariat. What did Lycurgus do? His first measure was one of general security, at the very idea of which our legislators would tremble. He abolished all debts then employing by turns persuasion and force he induced the nobles to renounce their privileges and re-established equality lycurgus in a word hunted property out of lacedaemon seeing no other way to harmonize liberty equality and law i certainly should not wish france to follow the example of sparta but it is remarkable that the most ancient of greek legislators thoroughly acquainted with the nature and needs of the people more capable than any one else of appreciating the legitimacy of the obligations which he in the exercise of his absolute authority cancelled who had compared the legislative systems of his time and whose wisdom an oracle had proclaimed it is remarkable i say that lycurgus should have judged the right of property incompatible with free institutions and should have thought it his duty to preface his legislation by a coup d'etat which destroyed all distinctions of fortune. Lycurgus understood perfectly that the luxury, the love of enjoyments, and the inequality of fortunes which property engenders are the bane of society. 
unfortunately the means which he employed to preserve his republic were suggested to him by false notions of political economy and by a superficial knowledge of the human heart accordingly property which this legislator wrongly confounded with wealth re-entered the city together with the swarm of evils which he was endeavouring to banish and this time sparta was hopelessly corrupted the introduction of wealth says m was one of the principal causes of the misfortunes which they experienced against these however the laws had taken extraordinary precautions the best among which was the inculcation of morals which tended to suppress desire the best of all precautions would have been the anticipation of desire by satisfaction possession is the sovereign remedy for cupidity a remedy which would have been less perilous to sparta because fortunes there were almost equal and conditions were nearly alike as a general thing, fasting and abstinence are bad teachers of moderation. End of section 24, second memoir, part 2. Recording by Chris Clark.